Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. I don't know what most white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Welcome back to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. Today's topic is interracial marriage. We discuss the history of marriage in America, share some actual stories from the past, connect the through line to today, and answer why knowing what has happened in the past can inform our present. We hope you enjoy the discussion. In the early 1600s, There was slavery in America. There were black people being brought here as slaves, but there were also white domestic servants that had a status that was very similar. And so the distinctions were based more on class than on color. And you can see that black enslaved people were not viewed the same way as in later periods because you can actually see them winning court cases. There were instances where where there would be black people who would buy their freedom more frequently. They would uh, take on, sometimes there's black people in that era that would even work for the government administering punishment to white people who broke laws. So there was, the, like, the racialization of society was not in that era the, the, the same way as it came to be later on. Black people generally, there was a lot of racism along color lines, and there was white supremacy, but it wasn't in like a fully developed form yet in that period. And interracial marriage was one of the tools that the people in charge of society used to create uh, the, the system of races that came to exist. The bans on interracial marriage basically forced people who were white and black that both prior to that time, had occupied a similar strata of society. It forced them to... It put distance between white and black people. And then once there was distance there, once the relationships were broken, then the white masters and enslavers could do basically whatever they wanted. Because at that point, even the lowest of the low white bonded servant could assure himself that he has a higher status than the people over there. And it like fomented racism and white supremacy that basically made it so that all the white people in society became a lot more okay with the chattel slavery that then came about. Mm-hmm. And basically, when you ban interracial marriage, you aren't just banning interracial marriage because what happens is it, it like shifts society because if you're a parent and your child is friends with, you know, if your white daughter is friends with the black boy next door, 
and interracial marriage is criminalized and there's like a criminal penalty for it, that changes the degree to which you're going to allow her to be friends with him. It, it changes how much you just want your family to be around other families if you, uh, families from other races, if you know that there are like criminal penalties for this. And so there was over time just an increasing rift between white and black. And the current racial understanding that we have came about more and more. Like prior to that time, basically most people didn't see themselves as white. They would see themselves as immigrants of the particular country that they came from. And even, you know, Italians and Irish were not considered to be white. They were Italians and Irish. And there, there would be, there wasn't like the understanding of whiteness that we have now. And also black people were still understood to be human and have dignity in a way that, that was then lost through chattel slavery. So interracial marriage was, was part of what created the world that came to exist. And so we want to kind of follow those threads. So diving in to the story, the first recorded case of a penalty for an interracial relationship in America happened all the way back in 1612. Sir Thomas Dale, who was the governor and also the marshal for Jamestown, forbids settlers to even speak to Native Americans. And he appointed violators to be hanged, drawn, and shot to death. And he did that because he knew if these white settlers are befriending the Native Americans and fall in love and getting in relationships, that that's going to create a different kind of system in America where basically we... The, the, the white people who now have appreciation for and love for Native Americans are not going to stand for other white people to come and dehumanize them and take all their land. Right. And so the only way to really set up a system where you can dehumanize a group, and Sir Thomas Dale knew this, was you basically have to make, you have to otherize them. You have to make your group see them as less than you in order to imbue rights to take their stuff or, or to enslave them in, in right. the case of black people. I want to briefly touch on the Pocahontas story because this kind of ties in and also it was just so different from this, the story of Pocahontas that I grew up knowing. John Smith, first of all, just was not the guy that I had you know the the Pocahontas movie portrays? Yeah, him I'm as. just gonna before you even get into that. I'm just gonna assume everything about that film was probably <laughs> absolutely <laughs> it was wrong was so. trash. But uh-huh. please inform me. Yeah, I, I guess I couldn't I couldn't tell you anything specifically, but I probably will in the next few minutes. Yeah, so we'll, we're not gonna go deep into it. But just uh, after the Peloton Indians stopped trading with the settlers, John Smith would enter a village burn a home down, and then threaten to burn down the village and kill the women and children if they didn't give half their food to the white settlers. So just not a good guy. Yeah, Pocahontas was basically captured and was essentially a prisoner of war. And she, when she married uh, John Rolfe, she did so under the duress of knowing that you're like a prisoner. And... Basically, it was a better option to have freedom through marriage than to, you know, remain imprisoned. But she was, I mean, in, to some degree, trafficked, uh, essentially. Now, she did, John, John Rolfe certainly did 
from the records appear to love her. He fell in love with her. It's hard to kind of really, for a woman like Pocahontas, to, to really know how she felt because, again, she was kind of forced into the relationship. So it's hard to know exactly where she landed. So was it illegal for him to do that? Or it was fine? For John Smith to do what he did, it was not frowned on. No, not him. I'm talking about the other John with Pocahontas. For for John Rolfe to marry Pocahontas, uh, yeah, it was accepted. And her marriage, she um, you know took on a Christian name and um, kind of like converted to Christianity. Although it's hard to see exactly what she you know believed because again she was under duress. But it was you know accepted. And actually, the descendants of Pocahontas later on in America, kind of interestingly her descendants were kind of accepted as white. There was actually an explicit exception made for the descendants of Pocahontas. They they kind of got around the white supremacist laws that were later set up. They made a a specific exception for her. But not not too surprisingly, her descendants actually used their relationship to Pocahontas to claim rights to Native American land. Mm-hmm. And so that was, it was kind of used still in a white supremacist way. So then early on, there were other penalties for interracial marriage. In, eight, in 1630, Hugh Davis was sentenced to be whipped for dishonoring God and defiling his body by lying with a Negro, um, is what the books record. And then in 1640, Robert Sweat was penalized for impregnating a black woman, Margaret Cornish. Um, But even here, you can see in the first half, like the early 1600s, you can kind of see that things just were a little bit different at that point because Margaret's husband, Greer, was able to successfully sue for custody of the three-year-old son, even though he was a slave at the time. And the case shows how slavery was not yet conceived of along harsh color lines. And it also, he actually won the case after he basically assured the judge that he was going to raise the son as a, as a Christian and he would teach him to read and write. So the judge actually wanted him to teach his son to read and write at the time, um, which later on during chattel slavery, that was, it was the opposite. But then basically the, the big social shift away from acceptance of interracial marriage really started to pick up in the mid, mid-17th century. So in the 1660s, there were a, a slew of laws that passed that started to crack down more and more on interracial marriage. In 1660, the Virginia Assembly penalized any English servant who would run away with black people, with black servants or black slaves. And then in 1662, the assembly doubled the fine for fornication because just in general fornication, I guess, at that point had a fine, but they doubled the fine if it was mixed race. So it was just the like an early instance of a discriminatory law that was discouraging interracial relationships. And is it safe to assume when you were setting this up, like these laws and punishments were the beginnings of trying to otherize black people. Like they're purposefully seeing like, oh no, they're getting more socially accepted into our society and we need a way to further otherize them so that we can eventually get to, I don't know if they had chattel-based slavery in their head at that time, but you know, is that what they're thinking? 
Mm-hmm. And so they're putting these laws in to begin to otherize them in our society so that when the time comes that we can like enforce some even more discriminatory stuff that it's a little more acceptable than it is now. Yeah. And this is totally and that you can see that the people in that day they had no excuse. They can't appeal to the fact that they were a product of their time because they're in that time it wasn't chattel slavery, but they deliberately passed laws in, persu- in the legislatures. They deliberately set up these increasing boundaries to divide the races and to basically draw racial lines where they didn't exist before, at least in, in that conception. And they set up this system in order to be able to break relationships between white and black people so that they could dehumanize black people and exact more labor from them. And so labor conditions for black people, the the people who were enslaved, just got harsher and harsher and harsher and more and more. I mean, it turned into chattel slavery where they were worked just excessively, where before this there were actually some degree of labor rights even for um, indentured and, and enslaved people that all went away and white masters basically came to have complete control and ownership in the chattel-based slavery system. But it was, it was deliberately set up and this was one of the tools that they used to create that. So in 1682, uh, the Virginia Assembly eliminated the ability for enslaved people to gain their freedom by converting to Christianity. Uh, before that, the, the lines were also kind of along religion and not just color. The, it, the conception was that black people were not Christians and white people were Christians, but then when black people would become Christians, it's like, well, if we were kind of drawing the lines, lines along religion before, there's ambiguity now of, can we still enslave you? But then the Virginia Assembly basically clarified that, no, it's color, not religion, that we are, that's the basis for uh, the enslavement of people. And that happened in 1682. In 1691, the Virginia Assembly uh, finally explicitly condemned the, they called it abominable act of a marriage of any white person to any person of color. Uh, and this was 30 years after they had enacted the first special penalty, uh, special penalty for fornication between the races. So over a period of 30 years, there was this shift from kind of discouraging interracial relationships to an outright ban that carried big penalties. And then through the 1700s, the bans just grew. So seven of the 11 existing colonies in 1725 enacted codes that banned interracial marriage. There was uh, just kind of an interesting debate and there wasn't really an accepted standard for who counted as black in those days. Later on, and in some places, the one-drop rule arose where if you had any black blood, you were considered to be black. But in other places, it was different. In Virginia, in 1785, uh, they used the standard of uh, 25%. If you were 25% black, then you counted as black. In other places, they developed special categories and words um, like black-colored quadroon, octoroon, describing different proportions of people's blood that was black. And they gave different social standings based on that. For example, in, in Haiti, when before the Haitian Revolution, before uh, when when Haiti was like a slave colony, there were black people who worked at the like lowest 
of the low in the fields, and then the colored people, and then the quadroons, and then the octroons, like basically the, the lower percentage of black blood you had, it elevated your standing in society, and people were foremans or drivers if they were more white. And that's just how they structured their society. And But different places did a little bit different, but all stemming from this underlying idea of uh, white supremacy and racism that was developing. Virginia, late in the century, following the Revolutionary War, the in Virginia they had manumission, just became like a common thing. A lot of white people, because of the Revolutionary War, they had these ideals of you know, freedom and justice for all. And the whole basis of the Revolutionary War was this idea of human dignity. And so a lot of white people actually started to manumit their former slaves. And so the proportion of the black people in Virginia who were enslaved increased from 1% to 10% in just like a decade. So that actually concerned the Virginia legislature because they're like, if if all these people keep manumitting their slaves and we have more and more black free population, that's going to... First of all, they were just racist to the point that they were worried about interracial marriage becoming a thing. Um, and then second of all, they were like, that's going to threaten the whole system. So then in, in 1806, the legislature basically gave all the free black people a warning that you have one year to leave the state or you're going to risk being re-enslaved. They just wanted the black people gone because they didn't want to, it was like a threat to the white supremacist worldview that underpinned the the continuation of slavery there. Then in the 1800s, moving kind of forward through time, uh, you can see just like a continued basically what had started as a legal campaign to ban interracial marriage also became a propaganda campaign. You can see how it filtered down to like every level of society. Um, There's uh, Edward William Clay developed these lithograph prints that illustrated grotesquely drawn black men with exaggerated features marrying these carefully and tastefully drawn white women. And these were like kind of popular and ubiquitous throughout society. These, uh, these portrayals of black men as just being savage and white women as being kind of uh, in danger of being uh, dragged down by these interracial relationships. What, what, when is this happening again? That, that was kind of 1839 okay. was the, the date that was on that. But it was really all through that era and it was kind of a growing campaign in the media, in like media portrayals, and it, I mean, it went all the way through Jim Crow even. I mean, Birth of a Nation in, what was that, 1915, just was a continuation of that same idea of creating fear of interracial relationships. And then also, as part of that, there was this criminalization of black men um, that, and, and the whole idea that uh, we talked about in the lynching episode about black men raping white women. There's... It was yeah. this whole thing. And, uh, you know, as you're talking about these stories and stuff, I think my brain and I bet a lot of our white listeners' brains are thinking it's easy to, like, disassociate myself with what was happening in America in the 1600s and 1700s. And I don't think I really start to tie into, like, the history of our country until, like, around the Civil War and, like, the late the later part of the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Like, I just think... 1600s almost is a different world. Mm-hmm. I don't know. They were like, 
I mean, it's it's. I mean, I know that this is just in my mind, so I know that it's part of our history of this country. But I feel like I don't actually tie myself. I can't really see myself in history until like the later part of the 1800s, going mm-hmm. into the 1900s. And mm-hmm. I don't know if people that were in the 1800s would say that same thing about people in the 1500s, you know, whatever. But I think you know, you're telling all these stories and I think even in my head, I'm like, this is so bad and this isn't good. And, but it's like, I just am disassociated myself with it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how you would even encourage someone like me to like, you know, I don't have to tie myself to that. Does that help what I'm yeah, saying? Like, yeah. what would you say? Cause I, it's easy for me to think like, I don't need, that was a different even world. I don't even like it, why does it even matter what happened in the 1600s, 1700s? So I would just say look at where we are today where the headlines about Meghan Markle and Prince Harry um, and the division, the divide that we're experiencing over their marriage and where the issue of the color of the baby's skin, you know, that that is actually being talked about in the monarchy or the firm or whatever they want to call it by the people in their family. That the fact that that's still an issue, it 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 the history is rooted in 1619 and the 1800s and and all of that is still very much a residue in our society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to know where it came from and where it started can like help us understand what was happening in Jim Crow and what was happening, uh, like how that filters into the present. So I think. That's the whole thing with history is like when you follow a concept through history, it gives perspective on the the world you live in now. Well, and even looking at like the exonerated five, these children who were basically blamed for what for raping a white woman, and you know, some of them served up to 20 years and they were minors and how they were treated and how they a confession was beat out of them and how they were intimidated and how the imagery of the rape of a white woman could invoke a lynching that lynchings that were occurring even during my parents young and teenage years i mean because it's not so far removed i was you know, i'm 48 years old and just a few years before i was born people those lynchings and those murders were happening but even after i was born very much long after I was born, just invoking the imagery of a white woman being attacked by a black man. Think about uh, think about Emma Till, 14 years old, blamed for whistling at a white woman, and the white woman said that he had not done that, and he was still brutally mur- murdered at 14 years old, and his face wasn't even recognizable. This is where all of that comes from. It's not... People can disassociate themselves from history, but even... We still have people now that are saying that interracial relationships are wrong and people should stay with their own own kind and even look at, I, I think that there's a difference between black male, uh, black women, black men and women being um, married and even black women and white men being married. As When you look at the stereotypes of black women, you look at the standard of beauty, all of these things have impacted the numbers when it comes to even nuclear black marriage. Like when it, when it comes to nuclear black marriage, it, nuclear black marriage has taken a tremendous hit 
from the racism that's been perpetuated against interracial marriage. We don't even think about that or discuss that. But racism and oppression, how it's impacted black people marrying black people. Mm -hmm. And just to kind of go on, on that line of thought, like one of the dynamics that happened was that black men were, there was such a stigma uh, against black men even going near to or talking to a white woman. Um, and it kind of set up this, almost like this idea for, uh, it was like a status thing where, maybe, sorry, maybe we don't want to go down that road. Do we no, want to go down that road? I, I, I was going to go down that road about okay. how, you know, with with black men and white women, it's been so stigmatized that then it becomes glorified and then it becomes more acceptable. But black women still are on the outs because, again, the standard of beauty to make to, to the point where because black people, because of racism, black people have colorism mm -hmm. because of racism and the institution of racism and even the hierarchy of uh, the various levels of, you know, 100% black, 50% black, you know, mulattoes, quadroons, octoroons, because of, of racism, there's this system of colorism uh, from, 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 from interracial rape, <laughs> from white men raping black women and, and, and further dividing. I mean, there's the division between impoverished white people and black people and you talked about the feudal system and you know how poor whites uh, would suffer, not not the same in the same ways that Af African Americans would suffer, but poor white people would suffer. But then the division created between black people of different shades, and how that standard of beauty and all of that stigma, <clears throat> excuse me, how all of that stigma creates this taboo thing that then becomes exploited and uplifted. And so we, we think progress is the fact that black men and white women can get together and marry, but we don't look at the carnage of what it's done to black women and their chances of being married or in a relationship because black men have learned to not desire black women and not to see, to see uh, black women as not the prize, <laughs> Black women have come to self-identify that they are not the prize. And black women and white men in, in, instituted the, the whole system of black women not being the prize. And so it's so far-reaching. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that even during sharecropping, even after slavery ended, <clears throat> white landowners would just regularly take sexual advantage of the black sharecroppers and there was like no system of justice that would protect them. Yeah. Black and men would have to watch their black wives leave the house. They talk about this in the rape of Reese Taylor and other stories like where black women would have to leave their home if they were a sharecropper, they'd be a wife of a black man with children. A church-going black woman would have to go and subject her body to rape of the white landowners just so they could stay in the house, just so they weren't, you know, thrown on the streets. And it was such a common thing. And just the degradation, the dehumanization that it did, not only to the black woman, especially to the black woman, but to 
the marital nuclear marital uh, relationship, like mm-hmm. black marriages, and and then at the same time, the the white woman who is like the landowner's wife, she is like so protected and guarded, and if the the black man, even if any black man even goes near her. He's like subject to lynching. So, so lynching just, and castration. Like, yeah, castration was a tremendous part of lynching. Of lynching, they would cut their genitals off and let them bleed out and suffer, mm-hmm. and then lynch them and then shoot their bodies for like riddle their bodies with bullets. Yeah, uh, there's one story that I had read recently where a, a black man who fell in love with a white woman, uh, he was taken and they nailed his penis to a uh, to wood. Yeah. To a tree, and basically f- gave him a knife and forced him to cut to castrate himself yeah. in order to be free. Yeah. And that was like the brutality of of that system was. It was not just brutal, but it was brutal, and along these kind of like lines of like uh, protecting white women, um, taking black women, um, and preventing amalgamation between. Uh, the races, most specifically between black men and white women. So then that creates uh, this idea through time where then black men, um, later on, like Malcolm X even talks about this, how in, in, the, in Harlem and after, you know, during Jim Crow era, for, for Malcolm X, when he had a white girlfriend, yeah. it was seen as this like powerful status symbol. Yep. And like, here's this like forbidden th- fruit for, where for, for centuries, if you had a white woman that was like a risk to your life, and now you're like just kind of like openly walking around with this white girl on your arm, and that just like shows that you've kind of like risen above the system and beat the system. It was like seen as this like prize, and it gave him status in throughout all of Harlem. Right. But and, then it was his demise because when he was sent to prison, his his sentence and that of his black friend when they were robbing houses was much harsher mm-hmm. than the sentence of the white women. Mm-hmm. And they immediately, you know, turned on Malcolm and the other, other black man. And mm-hmm. so you see the prison, prisons are filled even still with black men who were in uh, consensual relationships with white, white women and white girls who there's a young man who I think he might have been 17 and the white girl was like 16 and they had a relationship and he was like on, on track to be a football, to play football and he go to college and his whole life was cut short um, because she basically was forced to accuse him of rape. So there's this whole history of black male imprisonment from consensual relationships with white women that they would just kind of twist and say, force the white women to say they were raped so that they could then uh, persecute Mm -hmm. black men. Even the story of Rosewood in Florida, where the whole town was burnt to the ground and people were murdered, like so many people were murdered, men, women, and children, black men, women, and children. And they went on this domestic terror killing spree, it all started with a white woman who was having relationships with a white man who beat her and she was married. And so to explain why she was beaten, 
she said that it was a black man that raped her and she made I mean made up this story and the whole town was burnt to the ground. And so we see or Tulsa is similar. Yeah, Tulsa is similar. So many stories of where townships were burned down. So these interrela- interracial relationships, they take on a whole or or um just the crime of interracial relationships, they take on a whole uh, form that still impact us today. And now we're dealing with the headline of Megan mm-hmm. and yeah. Harry and how she's been treated so viciously because as a black woman with a white man, it's going to be treated differently by society than even a black man with a white woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then just just to kind of like connect the final dots of like, if you create a system in which now black men view themselves or view themselves as having like arisen above racism if right. they can have a white wife as a prize that's the prize as opposed to yeah black women yeah then then what that has done is it's like i think the the inter, the rate of interracial marriage between black men and white women is about double that of the rate between uh, white men and black women and so what that does is it creates all these black women who now don't have a man. It just like creates a, a like a imbalance. I was talking to a friend of mine who, who was saying, because I did a live on Facebook, and he was saying that black women, their percentage of interracial relationships is just a few points more than black men. And after thinking about that, but I, there are significantly more black women than there in, in the population than there are black men. But then when you think about the pool of potential marriages between black men and black women because of mass incarceration, because of all the disparities, health and wage disparities, and, uh, poverty, when you think of the criminalization of black men and boys, then it makes sense. But I would say as a black woman, Black women truly, like a lot of times black women are single because we will hold out for black love because we also understand the stigma of being with, like that, that stigma. I, I see, I have so many white, black female friends and this is, this is a trend like that will not marry outside of their race because of the stigma and what they know they'll have to endure. And I, I have black female friends who are married to white men and the things that they have to endure with their families, is, you know, with their white in-laws, mm-hmm. it's insane the stuff that they have to deal with. I mean, it is insane. Yeah. I mean, so a third of boomers say that they would approve of having an in-law of a different race. Which means two thirds mm-hmm. wouldn't, or you know, chose like you know, not sure on the question mm-hmm. uh, on the survey. So, so like two thirds of that generation, like if you're of our parents, yeah, that's our parents, are going to be uh, stigmatized by their own in laws, by their own family, much less like the wider society and like wider with a D, the the broad society and how they are viewed. Well, and just think about that percentage of boomers who may even be okay with interracial marriage, but they're still racist because I see a lot of that. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of, I, I know of one uh, white woman who is my, one of my former professor's uh, wife and their son is married to a black woman and she is racist. 
Mm. I mean, it's it, but they will they will use the fact happily use the fact that they have a a black daughter-in-law or you know, son-in-law and they will use that as a badge of honor or the fact that they adopted a black child. A lot of these people even with the stats of sure, I will have a black, you know, relative, son-in-law, whatever, but they will still be racist. So when you look at the stats from that angle, I mean, it, it's, it's mm-hmm. even worse. Yeah, that reminds me of even going back to the, the Meghan Markle story, um, seeing headlines that the members of the royal family now have been making a concerted effort to be seen in public with just other black people. Uh, exactly. As, as a way to show like, look, no, we're not racist. Look, we have black friends. As if that's the, resp- the, the answer. And then, but you then know, that's still using it, black people. That's still propping black people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the monarchy, they created and perfected the system of racism, enslavement, and oppression that we still feel today. Mm-hmm. And 1,200 years of, <laughs> of, I mean, of colonialism, enslavement, oppression, they're still... British colonialism is still very much a thing. Mm. And people try to dis- disassociate themselves from things just because there's been time. But considering time and the progress that we have not made, that should be the marker. That should be the marker that colorism is still an issue, that a baby's, a baby, a baby shade is still an issue after having this extravagant wedding where you sit in the pews and even, you know, one British, uh, someone from the monarchy, one of the relatives wearing these racist, wearing racist jewelry and brooches. I mean, it's still very, racism is still very steeped in the monarchy. Um, And I, I think like the whole idea of, kind of what we said about some people might be okay with it until it hits home a little bit, mm-hmm. until like your daughter walks home with a, a black man or your, or your son walks, you know, introduces you to her, his new white girlfriend. Like a lot of this, people can think it's the whole idea, oh, I'm not racist, I have black friends. Mm-hmm. And then when it gets really close, so now someone's like one of your, you know, we're talking... They're entering the family, mm-hmm. then it starts to. Like, you don't really need to deal with those things. Like again, what we kind of say is, white people, we can very much, like, not have to deal with race problems. Like we can distance ourselves from, from having to even be friends with black or brown people. Like, right. we, like we can live our whole lives, and that's not even a thought. Mm. So, but when we have to think about it, it's almost like you're being forced to deal with what you actually think about black and brown people is when it starts to hit home hit home and it, it gets real it goes from this ethereal you know racism isn't real you know i love all people to now they're coming home getting married it's like you now you actually have to deal with it or just even why solidarity when we're looking at sharon osborne who came out in support of piers morgan and in the name of free speech supporting his vitriol um, and how much hatred that he spewed at Meghan Markle because she ended up with Harry instead of him. Um, and how black Brits have been calling him out on his mess. 
and how he ends up walking away from the conversation and, and ends up, I guess, being forced to quit the show. But he's been spewing hatred towards her for, ye- for, for years now. And Sharon Osbourne gets to come in and say, I support you, peers. And it's like, how tone deaf and blind. You, you, you know, Cheryl Underwood, who is one of my sorority sisters, she was one of um, my sorority's uh, international bossless, is what we call it, president. And she sits on the show. She's on the show with, uh, and I know Cheryl personally, she's on the show with uh, Sharon Osbourne. I don't know if you guys saw where she had a complete meltdown when Cheryl, who is an amazing black woman, just called her to task like, and said, I'm concerned about what the viewers who see you supporting peers, what, what, what they're going to, you know, what do you say to them? She just asked her a simple question. And Sharon just went off, <clears throat> went off the rails and you're attacking me for being right. No, you, you come out and you say that you're supporting Piers Morgan, who has, it has been racist. People have a right to question you. And so she's like, I'm not a racist. Like she comes completely unglued to a black people, people to a black woman, black people, white people don't realize how their racism plays out and how it can be so obvious to black folks. But because they've never had to deal with their racism, because most of the time their circle is insulated and white, and they never had to look them look at themselves in the mirror, they can point at other people who they feel are blatantly racist but then still support someone who's blatantly racist. And she even said at one point in the conversation, what does that have to do with me? It has everything to do with you, white person. You know, it has everything to do with you when you haven't done the work and then you claim to be welcoming a black person in the family and then you end up wounding them at the dinner table because of your stupidity. Mm-hmm. And. I think some of the language that's been helpful to me is uh, talking about how things can be racially harmful. And uh, I think that's when you're confronting someone, if you call them racist, it makes it, it's true, but it makes them defensive. So using the language of like, what you said was racially insensitive, it was racially hurtful, it was racially harmful, that can be helpful language, but... But I don't think black people owe white people that. Like if it's if it's quacking like a duck, duck and walking like a duck, mm-hmm. and you're sitting at the table with your racist. I mean, I, I from friends that you know, and I we have interracial fam, uh, interracial. My brother's married to a white woman. If it quacks like a duck, if it walks like a duck, then mm-hmm. it's a duck, and so that's racist. Mm-hmm. It's like it's not on the onus of the black person to be like, yeah, let I, me, you know. Like tiptoe around you, it's on the onus of the white person to have to sit in that discomfort. But to your point, yeah, white people want to be accommodated, and because they don't want to see themselves like they really are, they 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 never have to be in a position where they have to face themselves. So facing themselves is difficult. But like in the situation with Cheryl Underwood, she didn't call Sharon a racist. She just said, "What do you, what would you say to your viewers?" who would see your support of, of peers and feel that that's racially insane. Like, she did not 
and, and she prefaced it. Like she was, like we say in the hood, she was walking on eggshells and pissing on cotton just to even say, like, she's like, you are my friend and I know you. But what, like she, she was so delicate and Sharon came unglued. And that's happening at interracial dinner tables all over the world because white people haven't had to deal with their racism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you can have, like if you're swimming in a white supremacist culture, which we Mm -hmm. are, like you can have racially hurtful views, racist views, and also love a black person. And white people, I think, use the fact that they love this particular black person as kind of self-congratulatory evidence that I could not possibly be racist. But but we, can you really love a black person if you have racist views? Well, you can love someone and think you're better than them. Like, people love their pets. People, and like, that's you the don't point. have to, yeah. So that's not love. Yeah, you can have, like, a you can feeling think you love. of, yeah, a feeling mm-hmm. of affection. But if you, at the same time, are not, like, Valuing and loving in like the broader sense of the word, the meaning of the word that's like like an actual like considering someone as yourself. Right. Like that's like the biblical definition of love is to like love your neighbor as yourself, to value someone as you value yourself, and that is what you're not doing if you're not entering into that space of sensitivity. Um, and. and well, and I want to make a couple of points um, about black marriage because a lot of times, especially in this society, this culture that we live in right now, we uplift interracial marriage or the fact that people can interracially marry as a marker of progress, um, which is not because racism still abounds. But before interracial marriage was banned, black marriage was banned. Black marriage was banned first. Nuclear black marriage has been threatened in so many more ways than interracial marriage has been. Um, Black marriage was forbidden. And coming from Africa and different parts of the world, like black people, they valued marriage and community and family. And so to get over here on slave ships and to be forbidden to marry, but or even sneaking off to have our own marriage rituals, like jumping the broom, it comes from not being able to marry and us making our own tradition of what made a marriage official and and committing ourselves to each other in marriage uh, by jumping a broom and jumping into marriage land, married land, when it was still forbidden and your 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 spouse could still be Forced to breed with someone, could your 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 spouse could be raped, your spouse could be sold off to another plantation. You could decide that you're in love with this person, but your master decides that they want your spouse that you secretly married to marry someone else. And I don't think that we really deal with uh, just how the miracle of black nuclear marriage, because most black people are married to black people. And just the everyday struggle for black families uh, and the trauma that we've endured has been so, you know, just heinous. And just the, we talked about earlier the restriction of white men and black men and what that produced and interracial marriage 
it, it never protected black women because, you know, I, I know people don't like to hear this word, but raping black women was a societal norm. So interracial relationships have already always e- existed in America, but it was the context of which they existed where black women were used as concubines and they were raped. And so being with a black woman in that way, that was a societal norm. Sexual relationships, most often sexually abusive in nature, uh, that was normal. But it was just the marriage part that was unacceptable. Mm-hmm. It was accepted to have a black concubine, but if you made her your wife, that was like crossing a line right. that culture, culture wouldn't go along with. Right. And then, and then, any kind of relationship between, uh, like, a, a black man and a white woman was was stigmatized strictly right. all along. But then, what's so crazy is that we hear stories of interracial couples, like interracial couples. We hear, you know, of them taking advantage of the privilege of whiteness, like when they sell homes. So. Even recently, we've heard of a few stories of interracial couples. They're trying to get the property value of their home. The uh, appraiser comes in. They see pictures of black people. The value of the house is $400,000 less than it should be or $150,000 less than, than it should be. So then they take all the black pictures out, and they only have white pictures, and the white spouse shows up and then the appraisal is higher so there's still an you know there's still a way to um, pass and protect and and obtain those resources that nuclear black marriages and families won't won't have and even now there's an upliftment of i feel like there's so much guilt associated with the fact that interracial marriage was criminalized that now like white America, white evangelicalism specifically, they uplift interracial marriages, specifically those of black men and white women. I was in a Bible study, uh, a home group, where a, at, a, at a nuclear black church, churches down the street from where we podcast, I was the music director there for six years, and there was a white uh, minister and his wife, and she was one of the leaders of our home group. At her house, she literally said that racism could be eradicated by interracial marriages. And there was a couple where there was a black, a biracial young man who was Nigerian and white and a white woman, and they were having a hell of a time. They ultimately divorced, but she encouraged them to stay together. There was abuse going on, on the, I think, on the woman's end. Um, and she really pushed them to be together because that was going to solve the problem of racism, which that whole notion, and she, you know, she's like this tattooed hip, hippie type, you know, peace, love, and light type of white woman. But that's a racist, racist ideology to think that all of racism is solved because black men get, so you see this endorsement, and especially you see, we see this where we live, a lot of interracial couples where where it's black men and white women and how black men have been brought into like the SBC and they've been brought into white evangelical churches. And it's like that encouragement of, okay, we're going to teach you the right theology. And then we're going to, from there, you're going to choose the right type of woman, which is often the white woman who is going to be docile, subservient. She is the perf- she is the perfect ideal for a, you know, for marital candidates. And so black women who are black and 
who are more independent, who, you know, black women being the most educated people group in the country, despite all the craziness that we've had to endure, or being and being outspoken and having to work. A lot of times in black nuclear families, black women can't stay at home. I've always wanted to be a stay-at-home mom, but I cannot do that. I cannot do that. I'm married to a black man. I've wanted to be a stay-at-home mom, but just in ways that the black family operates where, uh, versus how, you know, the, the white or interracial where the black man is at the helm, how they might operate and how the black woman is not seen as a prize. But there's an upliftment of interracial marriages to teach black men that come into these white folds okay, you're doing so great. You know, all, you, you know all the theology. You're doing so well. So now we need to get you hitched. And this is the perfection. This is the standard, this white woman, this black woman. So now there's, this, there's been this reversal uh, where, where interracial relationships are uplifted, but it's still to the exclusion of black women. And, so, and, and transracial adoption is uplifted. So it's cool to have black kids, but a lot of people with black kids that are white are exploiting their black kids and you're seeing a lot of like black children flee from these situations when they become adults because of the oppression that exists and the blindness and the ignorance and the refusal to do the work. And so it's interesting, there's been a twist. It's like, okay, black, black, you know, interracial marriage is being wrong, you know, like we were wrong for that. So let's fix it, but we're still going to be in control and we're still going to, you know, control the narrative and we're going to do this our way instead of yielding to black people <laughs> and looking at how our way of life has been forged and forced and born from oppression. And the fact that black nuclear marriages even exist is a sheer miracle especially when you combine it with the brutality that we're we're seeing you yeah. know yeah. yeah one step along those lines is that even in the kind of early uh, the you know Jim Crow era there were there was a time when 98% of white women stayed at home mm-hmm. and so only 2% were in the workforce and 40% of black women uh, we're, we're working full-time. And, and you know what else is interesting with the wage disparities? A lot of times, black women will be the most educated person in the room, and they will get less pay as single mothers or mother or when black women who have to work and partner with their husbands and bring finances into the house, mm-hmm. whereas white men will get paid enough to care for their entire family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in the then, same positions. And I think sometimes the, there'll be the accusation from white conservatives to say like, well, black people just need to take more responsibility for themselves and, you know, just like need to parent better and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's like, if, if you're dealing with a situation where both parents have to work multiple jobs to still bring in less money than white people can get because of all this like generational wealth and entrenched advantages, mm-hmm. then it's just like, I mean, how unempathetic to say like you just need to climb up that mountain better, right? And it's it's just it's just really insane. I, I just know of so many situations. Me belonging to a white Southern Baptist church for the past several years. Um, and that that's not even my first rodeo in in white Christian circles. Just the oppressive systems that exist um, that exploit interracial marriage for 
to be able to say, look, we're woke and we have, look at this, we have interracial marriages, we have transracial adoption, we have this. And I'm not saying that about my church specifically, but there have been, I've seen problems where black women have been held to this standard of, of whiteness when it comes to how black women should be. I've seen black nuclear marriages destroyed because black women were ministered to from this perspective of well you're too you're too much you're too loud you're too you you need to pursue your husband's heart you need to be more subservient you need to be more docile you need to dress this way you need to just really like this policing of blackness to make it whiteness because that's what the the thing is now is to let's bring in blackness and make it white and say that we have you know we've done the work and there's been so much damage that's been done that's still being done. And then even where white, when I was in college, and I, I mean, I'm not trying to be subjective, but I've, I've had a lot of life experiences and, and I'm, I'm, I'm in my 40s and I've seen a lot. I've seen these trends play out in real time. There's a thing where white girls would, to piss their dads off, they would screw around with black boys. Like, I saw that all the time. And ultimately, they would clean themselves up and marry somebody white. But to, to rebel against daddy, they would date black guys to, to get, their, you know, get their dads pissed. And so you see, all the things that we're talking about is so, <laughs> it's so intertwined. It's so, it plays out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's, let's jump back to, Brad, you said earlier that like, it's hard historically for you to you know, fully connect yourself to stuff since the Civil War. So let me read some quotes and uh, dig into some of the stuff that has happened kind of during the Jim Crow era. And um, so I'm going to start with a couple of quotes that are just before the Civil War, just because they're, um, they kind of show the world that existed at that time. Um, so first of all, there was a, a, one of the kind of more influential theologians, Horse, uh, Horace Bushnell, said in 1837, out of all the inhabitants of the world, its best stock, the Saxon, and out of this, the British, the noblest of the stock, was chosen to people our country. There's this idea of this glorification of, of whiteness and kind of this, this hierarchy that was being set up. Um, Senator John C. Calhoun said in 1848, so just kind of before the Civil War, are we to associate with ourselves as equals, champions and fellow citizens, Indians and mixed race of Mexico, Sir, I should consider such a thing fatal for our institutions. So just this, again, you can just see the, the, the racism and this idea of like ethnic purity that needed to be protected. And then the Boston Chronicle wrote of uh, Richard Johnson, the ninth vice president, quote, he is indeed the most powerful agent of amalgamation by giving of his fortune to half-breeds, referring to his two biracial daughters, he tempts men greedy of money, but insensible to shame, to mingle the white and the African race in a union which will mix the fair complexion and the bright intellect of the one into the darkness and inferior into the darkness and inferiority of mind, which are characteristics of the other. I mean, that's like the Boston Chronicle. That's like a media publication, and that's the language that they're using. It just infiltrated the culture. This utter disdain for interracial relationships, this white supremacy that relied upon these um, strict color lines. And even Abraham Lincoln, leading up to the Civil War, he was receiving flack for being too soft towards black people. And so he uh, tried to 
kind of prove his racist bona fides by saying, there is a natural disgust in the minds of nearly all white people when it comes to the indiscriminate amalgamation of the white and black races. So even he, in order to like preserve power, like he didn't favor slavery, but he still had very white supremacist views and, and tried to show that he was not in favor of amalgamation. Um, so then post-Civil War, um, there were some of the slaves during Reconstruction did get rid of their bans on interracial marriage. Uh, so after the Civil War, New Mexico, Louisiana, South Carolina, Washington, and Mississippi repealed their bans. But other states, uh, Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, Kentucky, Ohio, Michigan, and West Virginia maintained bans on interracial marriage um, in that era. So then post-Civil War, um, the Supreme Court in Pace versus Alabama in 1883 upheld that bans on interracial marriage were still constitutional because the Supreme Court found that they harmed both white and black races equally, um, as long as the penalties were equal. And so they they decided that, that it wasn't discriminatory, even though that's very obviously was not the case. In 1924, the Virginia statute was passed saying, quote, it shall hereafter be unlawful for any white person in the state to marry any save a white person or a person with no other admixture of blood than white and Indian American. There were also interracial bans in 14 states between white people and Asians and in five states between white people and indigenous people. Um, So there was less vigor to protect the purity of white blood in those cases, but there was still um, a lot of racist vigor to um, wielded in those directions as well. And then in 1967... So, I mean, we're getting real recent here. 16 southern states still banned whites from marrying non-whites. 16 states in 1967. And then 1967 is when um, the Supreme Court, um, through the case Loving versus Virginia, struck down bans against interracial marriage. So in in that story, basically, it was Mildred Jeter was a black woman who was 17 years old when she fell in love with Richard Loving, a white man. And Richard and Mildred got married and they spent the first year of their marriage happily in bliss living with Mildred's parents um, and her family home until one night, Sheriff Garnet Brooks and two deputies allowed themselves into the home. The, uh, the front door had been left unlocked and they just came straight into the home, into the bedroom and woke them up and arrested them both uh, for their interracial marriage. After the arrest, they brought them back, booked them, and then they released Mr. Loving on a $1,000 bond, but refused to release Mildred. And when Richard fought for the freedom of his wife uh, for her to be given bond, they basically threatened that they were going to put a white man in the cell with her if he kept persisting. The Lovings ultimately negotiated a deal with the state of Virginia where they agreed to basically be exiled from the state for 25 years instead of um, receiving the one to two year jail sentence. They basically said, just leave the state. So they took that deal. And then in that process, uh, check out what the judge said in the case. Um, The judge said, the almighty God created the races white, black, yellow, Malay, and red, and he placed them in separate continents. And but for the interference with his arrangement, there would be no cause for such marriages. 
The fact that he separated the races shows that he did not intend for the races to mix. That statement was then they were able to use to show that this judge was racist. So they they appealed the case up to the Supreme Court, um, and ultimately the the Supreme Court delivered a unanimous decision deciding that the Lovings um, were allowed to be married and that bans against interracial marriage were unconstitutional. Mm. So that was in 1967. So now today, we, we kind of just take for granted the fact that, the, and there's still all these residual effects like we've been talking about that stem from this fear of the mixing of the races. But so much of segregation during the redlining era required this, these bans against interracial marriage. So much of the way the world, like just the fact that most black people well, actually, most black people do know some white people. Most white people don't know a lot of black people. And it is that is a direct descendant of this idea that, that the races, races should stay separate. White supremacy defended itself by this effort to keep um, relationships in general and love relationships in particular from forming between races because those would undercut white supremacy, and the residual effects of that are still here today. Even Gen Xers, only 62% of them favored interracial relationships in 1987. Wow. So when they were you know, young adults or teenagers, I think that would be young adults in 87, they in, there was a lot of them that did not favor interracial relationships. And then among that same group polled again, now 92% of them favor interracial relationships. So there's a shift that has happened, but it's only Gen X that really came through that shift. Even boomers, like I said earlier, two-thirds of them don't favor interracial relationships. Um, so this is like very much in our lifetimes that this shift has happened. And even in, in, in the last 10 years, you can see the continued shift where uh, the dating site OkCupid and some of the data that they've released show that in 2008, 43% of their users only wanted to see profiles from their same race. Um, and then by 2013, that, uh, so five years later, that fell 10 points down to 33%. So this isn't ancient history. This is something that very much is still, we are in motion, we are living through a shift that is still happening with regard to how interracial marriage is viewed. There are now, as of when Obama was elected, there are 4.3 million interracial marriages in America. In 1980, only 2.6% of white newlyweds married outside their race. And then by 2008, that number grew to 5.9%. And then by 2013, up to 7%. So we're still very much in the middle of this shift and we still have a long ways to go. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're looking for more information on what we discuss, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast and be able to vote for future topics, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. And remember, you can follow us on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter at blackhistoryforwhitepeople. On our next episode, we'll be discussing voting. We'll leave you with this quote from Rosa Parks. I have learned over the years that when one's mind is made up, this diminishes fear. Knowing what must be done does away with fear.